We are here in the 11FS offices in London for 112 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today, we bring you $1 billion crypto venture, more banking licenses for all, and do it for the gram. Telegram steps up their crypto project. All this and much more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host for today, Pep Barisha, as Simon is apparently still getting married or doing whatever he's doing. Today, I'm joined by a returning guest and Blockchain Insider. It says friend here, but it's legend, isn't it? The great Amon Kohli. Um, I'm happy with friend. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll stay with friend. How are you doing today? Uh, awesome. <laughs> What have you been up to recently? I haven't been on the show for for a little while now. Yeah, well, just back from summer holidays. So anything that before summer holidays, I've kind of forgotten. But I guess making some noise in payments and having a lot of fun uh, talking to our customers about just digital transformation and building systems around data and AI, which is where all the happening cats are doing things. Sounds fun, and I hope you have a good time on today's show. And we're also joined by uh, my colleague and co-host for today's show, 11FS's Will White, joining Blockchain Insider for the first time. Why don't you tell the Blockchain Insider listeners a bit about yourself, Will? Okay, fine. Yeah, I was previously at Monzo. I was the CEO at Loot before we didn't sell it to RBS. And now I work at 11FS with looking at all sorts of things and fascinated by this space. So happy to be here. Well, let's get on with the news. Uh, The first story comes from the New York Times. Telegram pushes ahead with plans for Gram cryptocurrency. Uh, Well named there, very creative. Uh, The messenger service has told investors that it is planning to send out the first batches of its coin, the Gram, within the next two months. I think this show is probably going to have to be called the Gram, isn't it? Uh, They are planning to make the Gram or Gram digital wallets available to the 200 million to 300 million global users that they have. And unlike Facebook, which released public plans for its digital money long before the first token was ready, Telegram has largely proceeded in secrecy. Shock of all shocks, Amon. Absolutely. So uh, the cynic in me would say, you know, what's the uh, amount of cocaine you can get in a gram or how many grams were announced? <laughs> I'm not exactly sure. But leaving the uh, cynicism aside, Telegram has an amazing dedicated set of users. It is a decentralized platform. It also has been traditionally one of the most innovative messaging platforms out there. Mm -hmm. If you ever want to know what's happening in terms of third-party extensions and all the boring things that can happen with software, Telegram has been out in front of everyone with that. So them launching a cryptocurrency for their dedicated set of users on paper looks interesting. Is this going to look like something completely cryptocurrency based? Or is this just kind of another version of what we chat are doing? I think we'll, we'll see as it comes out. But they're certainly shopping it around based on the New York Times article. They're looking for investors. So it is going to be backed by real money. And what's the what's the like main scrutiny? Because I, um, I downloaded it a couple of years ago. I was like, okay, it's a messaging service. Yeah. So that works. Um, I'm aware it's very, very popular for guys in the space. But what's the actual, like, what's the kind of scrutiny that they're under? And why would this make it controversial, is it? Oh, well, I, I guess if you look at the lineage of it, they were one of the first, along with Signal and Whisper, that came out with end-to-end encryption. Right. So WhatsApp came along much later with it. Mm. Law enforcement authorities haven't been very comfortable with them because they've been used for setting up public protests Right. Uh, but also uh, other bad things allegedly have been done using using Telegram. But there's very little proof on that in some cases. In other cases, there's more proof. 
But that's a matter of literally blaming the messenger and, <laughs> right? uh, and right. not the uh, not the people doing the bad acts. Yeah. Uh, and like you'll see right now, it's uh, quite popular in what's happening in Hong Kong. Not wanting to get all political on things, but that's where it comes from. Okay, that's the scrutiny. Yeah. And with regards to this, this, this feels just like a it's just an ability to pay users, right? It's just a coin within the yeah, which is well, which is useful. I don't. Um, and services, right? And not yeah. again, not in a CD way, but in you know, how can you buy and do things with with digital assets? Yeah, or doing things in a digital world. It seems problematic to go in and out of these different uh, payment systems uh, to pay for something. So, if you're going to buy a sticker pack, does it really make sense for you to shift out of Apple Pay or go into Google Pay or whatever that is? Yeah, right. Does it make more sense that you just say, you know, make this payment and it just happens? With this, and hopefully, I don't know how it's going to come out, but I would hope it has a nice little programmatic rules that you can build on top of it, right. so make it very controllable and configurable. And but what's the? I wonder what the regulatory, additional regulatory concern is here, because you'll surely still have to have uh, fiat off ramp on ramps, right? Which is just another name for exchanges, and so therefore, there's a there's like a point of control for the regulators to check that you know the source of funds. I, I guess, like, I can't see why they, in particular, would be under more regulatory scrutiny. But maybe I'm, well, maybe it's just because it's being how it's being used to share information at this point. I think the thing is, so you know, there's a general media view of anything cryptocurrency. It's shady, so it's speaking to that narrative. But in reality, anything payments related and payment flow related, you need to have the right level of transparency around uh, anti-money laundering. Yeah. Right. So that that would be a big concern here. You would need to have the right level of transparency around where are those flows going. So in this particular case, um, they're not used a lot in countries which are quite autocratic. So in Iran, it's not liked. But you can imagine a world where I work for, traditionally I work for American companies, we can't do business in countries like Iran and other places right, like right. that. So you can so, so they're sanctioned countries, right? So you, you again, this comes down to transparency and viability of things. However, if you take a step back and look at it from the lens of a 300 million globally distributed user base, you're servicing them. And how does that make it different? And how do you still manage to have a fully transparent platform? And I don't mean transparent that anyone can see it, but it complies with sensible regulation around the sense of anti-money laundering and all of that. And sanctions checks, yeah. It's interesting. I'm, I sort of wonder if you've controlled the ability to buy into a particular currency. I suppose they could, they could be available on, on decentralized exchanges. It seems, it seems like the regulators, but this is always the regulators thing with this space, like um, kind of, so, so to be fair, a lot of the authorities who look at this are sensible, but I think there's always that knee-jerk reaction, right? Oh, yeah, People are always like, oh, it's Silk Road. And it's like, well, that's five years ago. You know, like, and also if you couple it up with Telegram, who already kind of move in the shadows to some extent, or uh, are seen to be by quite a lot of outlets and, and people, then maybe it will come under more scrutiny. And, and to be fair, the regulator's job is to be the the handbrake. You know, it's it's to put the brakes on, to make sure, to ask the questions. So, and if it's already got concerns. As long as the regulators are the ones we like. Well, I mean, <laughs> territories we, you know, I haven't met a regulator who I haven't liked. But hmm. the um, the thing is, you know, the, the article had the perfect trifecta of Russia, Switzerland, and Middle East, right? As mentioned, where the founder of Telegram uh, has spent uh, his time. So, you know, that's clearly he knows how to use an airline. 
<laughs> Clearly, I think they. Um, I was just reading up while you guys were going back and forth. Uh, the two-part ICO that was done in February and March 2018 that was sale bought in 1.7 billion dollars, which is a pretty big ICO for the uh, gram taken. So you're saying he flies at the front of the bus? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> Move on to the next story from BFT. Alan Howard-backed firm plots $1 billion crypto venture. So hedge fund Brevin Howard are working on a platform that would design portfolios of crypto funds for institutional investors. That's that word again, institutional. Their aim is apparently to steer investors towards a select group of funds with higher quality operations so they, they can avoid blow-ups in a sector full of hazards. Uh, so their chief executive, Ben Wren, said that losing traditional assets in the real world is hard. In the digital world, it's very easy to lose assets. Put in the wrong address for a Bitcoin transfer and it's gone forever. What are your thoughts on this? My view of this is it's a great comment, right? It, it, it feeds into fear. If you ever read any of these uh, institutional investor profiles and where you should invest, there's always a beautiful underpinning of fear to sell it. What gets me out of this is what he's basically saying is, look, institutional investors don't manage crypto investments yourself it's too hard for you we will not only manage it for you that be your bank we will look after all the selling and buying and the investment algorithms don't worry you because if you look after yourself you know you'll lose stuff by the way you're going to have to pay us about a percent and a half management fees and if we meet our own performance targets we're going to take another 16.5% off on top. But don't worry. We don't want you to worry about where those keys are. So that's actually sticking pretty closely to the old 2 and 20 approach of investment. Like, you know, we'll 2% on this and 20 if we do well. That's ridiculous. I mean, that's, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm being very unfair here. I, I know a lot of people want access to this and don't have the time and energy to look at it. I suppose sort of philosophically, you want to remove gatekeepers. That's the whole point about being involved and interested in crypto in the crypto world so then you're just putting the gatekeepers back in but then maybe on the other end you're you're enabling more people to access the market so you still need the gatekeepers to, to the trusted intermediary to tell you how to do stuff in this case right my reading of it is this is a traditional sort of investment hedge fund so mm-hmm. it's no different to investing in sheep or investing in right. oil or investing in things the, the crypto just happens to be an asset that's being traded they're not trading in cryptocurrencies they are trading cryptocurrencies right. which is which is a big difference as a result you know it doesn't matter gatekeeper or not gatekeepers there are buyers there yeah are sellers, sorry that's right? probably silly because the truth is exactly what you say right i i'm i've got some small investments in etfs and stuff you know and that that's me just saying well look i can't i don't have the time to understand all this stuff i trust someone's done it right and there's a lot of people who look at this space, see the volatility, see the opportunity, which is why it works for a hedge fund, right? Mm-hmm. Huge volatility then which they can use within their their portfolio. And more people can access it. I healthy, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, I, I hope you're not paying sixteen percent performance uh, no. uh target <laughs> fees and one and a half percent or one point four one percent, which you know, the four one makes a difference, right? No, sorry, it's one point seven two percent is the management fee and twenty three and a half percent. So just why are these guys going to be so much better than everyone else? I mean, that's maybe that's a wider question that, that justifies that level of information. <laughs> well, they're a, they're a well-known name yeah. in the industry. I don't think there are a lot of uh, amalgamated crypto funds out there. I think mm. there are a few, but they're very patchy. 
some of the investment banks have their own desks, but they may not have a fund per se. If you look at who Brevenhauer sells into overall, then you'll see who their customers are and who else would be their competition in it, right? It's really just a good way for them to make extra fees. Mm. And I bet you those fees are going to be in fiat, right? <laughs> they're, 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 they're not going to be in uh, XRP or anything. <laughs> but, but overall, is the, do you think the appetite is still there in, in general for institutions? And, and is the, the main block of that kind of worry about, you know, we talk about custody quite a lot. But yeah. You've kind of maybe through the side that I see right now, I think it's slightly different. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of treating cryptocurrencies or crypto assets as analogous to real world assets. And oddly, I include derivatives of things like commodities in that, but I think they're different sort of things. This to me is just opportunism. And there are a few reasons for that because of the type of access to liquidity and the low level of overall trading within these um, mm. uh, vehicles means that they're very susceptible to the slightest behavior. I have a particular concern with that, right? So this feels, a lot of this kind of stuff where it's like, well, we're going to know more information, therefore we're going to justify these fees. I remember in 2017 when the ICOs were all happening, and I remember just putting my hand up from about February and going, there are existing SEC rules about how you do this. Yeah. You know, there are existing rules about whether this is right or wrong, and a lot of you on the wrong side of it. Just because it looks new doesn't make it different. And one of my problems with a lot of these, um, a lot of the crypto projects, ones with, especially ones that have fully centralized or semi-centralized teams, is that you're effectively dealing with a private, it's effectively a stock, and you can get access to non-public information. So that, for me, feels like there's going to be an insider trading. Not, not by the way, no, no. I'm sure these guys are legit and they're huge and they're going to, they've got rules. But like at some point, somebody's going to start thinking, well, actually, I know the project team. I know that centralized group who are controlling some part of it and making decisions on how this particular token is moving. And then you've got insider information. And that's insider trading is, is illegal in every territory on the planet, as far as I know. But yeah, and, the, and there's another matter. That's a risk. I mean, I'm it not is. saying these guys in any way are doing that. But the, the temptation is going to get bigger, especially on quite, quite thin trading and lumpy transactions. Generally within the funds world, there seems to be a drive to find out how they can generate more effectively revenue through management fees. Remember over the summer, uh, there's been a, uh, the fund here in the UK where the fund manager over-invested in non-publicly traded companies. And that had a liquidity crunch and he had to shut down people exiting the fund because of that. So that, that's another example of what's happening here because of things like ETF, because of other things, money is going in a different way. And this is addressing that macro trend that where there is money and people do want to invest, they do want to invest in this. Mm. So that's kind of a what they're trying to do with this. Again, it's it's a big meh for me, but I, I meh on many things. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm slightly indifferent because it's you know it's like it's trading. Someone's getting into it, institutional. Yeah, cool. Okay, but I do I do definitely worry with that insider trading thing. I'm I'm in the same way that the SEC just basically screenshotted everyone's Twitter and white papers and everything, and are now slowly bit by bit chasing every one of those teams. I think that there's probably likely to be somebody who will start thinking, oh, I can get you know I can get what feels like 
information ahead of the market, but actually they may be on the wrong sides of insider trading rules, not in reference to this company, but I do think that there'll be more unscrupulous players um, out there. Well, we should send a copy of this podcast to Revan Howard for comment. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if we can do that. Time for a quick break and another quick shill. Any plans on the 23rd or 24th of October? Join 11FS at Cordicon 2019 in London, one of the top blockchain events in the world hosted by blockchain platform provider R3. Cordicon, a once a year event, brings more than 800 blockchain leaders, technologists and Corda developers from various industries around the world together for two days of interactive sessions, use case presentations, tech talks, panels and more. Dev Day, hosted on day one, will focus on anything from blockchain basics and developer tooling to advanced concepts, while Biz Day on day two will feature industry leaders who will take an in-depth look at major initiatives and key trends in blockchain. Plan to join Dev Day, Biz Day, or both will be there. Did I mention registration is free? Sign up now, space is limited. Head over to r3.com forward slash Cordicom for more info. See you guys there. And I'm sure Simon will be there. It won't just be me. So you guys have a reason to come. (laughs) All right, on with the show. On to our next story from Cointelegraph. Should crypto stay decentralized or are CBDCs better? Experts answer. And Amon, if only someone in this room was featured in this article. (laughs) Well, why don't you take it away? Because I think you were featured in this article. Yeah, first for anyone, the CBDC is just a... An acronym of central bank digital currency, just just to be clear. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I know. I'm, I'm in this article as a as a I don't know a thought leader or something. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm kind of interested in this. The question is, number of central banks around the world are thinking about producing national coins of some variety. On that side, it's like okay, great. They might take the best in class, you know, best parts of the technology, some interesting stuff that they can do, some traceability, maybe, which I think is very interesting for national governments. I think underappreciated from a sort of criminality prevention standpoint. There, like the traceability of, of cryptocurrency is very, very interesting. Is it going to be better than a fully decentralized cryptocurrency? Well, well no, but by definition, it's centralized in some in some form, right? If there's a government entity in charge, at some point, there's a state or semi or quasi state entity in control therefore it's centralized if you believe that a fully decentralized cryptocurrency is a better form of money then ultimately humans will choose the better form of money it might take a while this may move the whole interest in it forward but i I just i'm very much of the view that at some point there'll be enough adoption and enough interest in decentralized cryptocurrencies that human beings will simply adopt it to do the same functions that they've always asked money to do, which is unit of account, medium of exchange, and I forget the third one. I wrote it down. Bet on on the horses. (laughs) Yeah, unit of account. I mean, yeah, unit of account, uh, medium of exchange, and store of value, right? That's all you want for money, but it doesn't matter if it's shells or it's gold standard dollars or it's dollars or uh, as it is today or it's a centralized cryptocurrency under a, a central bank or a decentralized cryptocurrency. It's just an evolution of what money is. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's um, validation of the of the technology. Yeah, that's the way yeah. I look at it. It's been interesting how central bankers have been approaching it. You know, Mark Carney, a few weeks ago, he had a very good speech on this. But also the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, was about three years ago, they did a joint study on how cryptocurrencies can play a role within uh, central banks, either as issuers of their own cryptocurrency or alternatively as digital money. Again, 
you know, there's a nuance, I guess, in the difference of it, or how can central bank infrastructures be used uh, within broader crypto or digital currency spaces? The Bank of Japan, Bank of England study kind of geared the bank here to look towards allowing these cryptocurrencies to have the same way in, potentially, into the um, settlement and clearing systems. Uh, again, once fully blessed and overseen by the regulators, but effectively opening up our settlement and clearing uh, infrastructure to cryptocurrencies, much like we do right now for security settlement, like we do for big money movements and that sort of thing. So that's one way. You know, how do you incorporate it into quote-unquote real money? Right now, a lot of crypto is uh, on the periphery of transactions. If you look at transaction volume, this way you're bringing it into the mainstream. I think that that's one particular view. What's interesting about this article is people who work for banks or work for central banks are like, you know what, we don't really need it. A, it doesn't make sense, kind of to your point, well, right? But B, we don't really need it because what's it going to do? And I thought the uh, contributor from the um, from BIS, which looks after international settlements, he's saying, look, decentralized NICE is an experiment, but does it really matter? Which I think is... An interesting comment, especially the language that was used, because I remember when mobile currencies came out and mobile money came out. If you heard a lot of bankers, they used the same words. So there is something here, right? But neither blockchain nor crypto nor distributed ledger has come to the fore in any of the modern payment systems that are coming out. And maybe there are good reasons for it, maybe there are bad reasons for it, but that is something. And right now there are about three or four amazing projects happening around the world with this. And maybe the technology is too early. Maybe they just haven't been ambitious enough in their thinking. Yeah, Morton Beck in this this article, which I think you were referring to, he said what people need is digital money that they can trust in an increasingly digitized and global world. The technology is not settled. That was kind of mm. like one of his quotes, which is quite interesting and yeah. kind of yeah. exactly what you were just alluding to. It's still a very evolving space, you know, and it's interesting that these these central banks are looking at it. I'm very much on the of the belief eventually there will be a decentralized version, but it, it may take two years or 20 years, like, or it might take 200 years. I don't know, but like it, the direction of travel is that way. So this is an interesting it's an interesting stepping stone. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I have a question for how central banks are going to... Try not to put on my tinfoil hat here, but like there's a lot of physical printed currency is very high denomination, 500 euro notes and stuff like that. You know, and I know that's a small team making a little bit of money at a national level in Signiorage, but it's like the best way to remove criminality from the system is not to hammer down on cryptocurrencies. It's actually to get rid of physical cash. So this is a good thing in my view. That's a separate discussion, I think. <laughs> so fully, but fully so, digital currencies are very interesting sort of, um, uh, it, I think it could, could massively in, um, yeah. improve. I wanted to bring that up actually before, like the, it feels like the step between those two points where we are now and, you know, decentralized currency mm. is probably going from a cash and cashless society to a completely cashless society, which yeah. for me kind of seems a way off, especially globally considering like the accessibility points around the world. Don't sweat too much about cash, right? There are a couple of things about cash. The general amount of cash, certainly in whatever, you know, the EU and Britain, is generally low, right. except for Germany, right? And they're very thick mattresses stuffed with cash. Right? 
but it's generally low compared to anything else. You know, M0, M1 supply is electronic. Yeah, true. And that covers most of our payments. The only time we realize money is quite transactional. You know, we go to an ATM, we go to a friend, whatever, and suddenly paper money comes out, mm. right? And that's pretty much at a point of transaction. Right. And especially, there's a great report and survey done uh, here in the UK that was released in the spring that was looking at inclusion and the move to digital and how the current approach is leaving so many people behind. Mm. So if you haven't, the access to cash report is definitely worth reading. In this article as well, they speak about inclusion. And that's something very important to bear in mind with this because going digital can mean losing control. It doesn't have to. Like uh, in India, they found it worked out very well when they moved to digital uh, disbursement and introduced new ways of payment through digital channels that they actually increased inclusion. So right. it doesn't have to, but you have to be focused on it. Yeah, and I think that goes to your point that the next step is fully digital money and you remove physical cash and you've got to do that in a safe way that is inclusive and ideally not too invasive to people's privacy. And then the next step feels that like once people are comfortable with that, they the fact that it's centralized or decentralized probably is an easier jump. And, and these are central banks, so they're not going to move fast, right? They're going to, they're going to experiment and they're going to test. Unless, unless you disagree, I don't know. Like- no, 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 no. I agree with you. I agree with you. I, th- I think the focus is on the mechanism of currency and you, you need to just as much think about the mechanism of identity. Right. The two are interlinked. If you can figure out what a decentralized or not digital identity mechanism is, it will help and mm. it will go a long way whether it's self-sovereign, whether it's backed by government, it, it helps. Mm. Interesting. 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 Any, any more points to add? Uh, you I could be very boring on this. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm, I'm very, very interested in this. Like I, I find the kind of central banking element and the challenges that are posed by this fascinating, but I think it's easy to go down a rabbit hole of, of sort of musing when the reality is probably just digital cash next. So yeah maybe so maybe so but it's uh, that was a good opportunity to chill yourself so uh, congrats uh story four comes from bloomberg a crypto firm hopes to get a banking license from singapore so signum who we we covered in a recent show which are based in both switzerland and singapore now plans to apply for a banking license in the island nation so the chief strategy officer gerald Go said, in order for us to provide a full suite of services, we need to operate as a bank in Singapore. After the company becomes a full bank in Switzerland, a transition is expected this year and uh, will then apply for a traditional banking license in the city state of Singapore, which is uh, interesting or a mere moment here, Amman again. No, it's really interesting. Um, so the macro things that are happening in Singapore is they're launching uh, virtual banks modeled a little bit on the Hong Kong model. I don't know if this is part of it or not. Uh, However, this speaks to the innovation that's happening in Singapore to drive new ways of doing things. They've been really open, trying to affect the way uh, money and banking gets done in Asia. And this could be a good way of doing it for them. How does this make it easier? What's the improvement for the customer, I guess, compared to like an existing bank? Like we see a lot of people put cards on the front of exchanges and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and I'm, that's very much in the club of your... Mm. Yeah. How is this different and, and like... So my understanding of how Signum works is it started with cryptocurrencies first and then they want to effectively create your banking and payments channels around that while staying within a crypto world. And then now they're talking about 
coming into a mainstream financial world and system. I think what makes this interesting, so one, the thing about virtual banks in Singapore means you can be a bank in Singapore without having physical presence there, which is, you know, not that radical for us here, but it's pretty radical for out there. And what's happened in Hong Kong is you've had these virtual banks get created through a mix of established banks, but it's usually a trifecta of an established bank, a mobile phone company, and a big retailer. Mm-hmm. Four or five of the ones in Hong Kong are meeting those sort of needs. So that basically means a channel, a place to spend it, and experience. Right, And those three together are forming credible propositions. And I think we'll see as the Singapore model comes out, what is going to be that trifecta or what is going to be that minimum? With that, you've actually got a stack, like a good old-fashioned technology stack coming through or an ecosystem in digital speak, right? That'll, I guess, pivot to the way we've been thinking about this. So Imperial College does a lot of work around digital money and the adoption of digital money. But what they see as the key requirement around digital money is not only do you need a way of transacting it and holding it somewhere and accessing it through digital means, you also need something like a mobile phone or a broadband or a, a network of communication and rails. In fact, your rails within digital doesn't become the SWIFT network. It becomes your cellular network or it becomes your internet or it becomes whatever. And then bolting on a large retail proposition gives you a means to spend it. That makes it sound like a very big store card, but it's more interoperable than that. Not quite like a super app is, is what we're talking about, but it's it's beginning to add more and more building blocks to, to, a, to a proposition, right? I think that's something that we're seeing more and more in the Asian market that maybe we're not really that used to hearing. You know, we yeah. have someone that we have a, an ISA with and then a bank account, whereas I think the Asian market is maybe moving to having that kind of bolt-on action that you were just talking about there, Mark. Could they take it out, can they then take it outside the Singapore market quite rapidly? Because that, that's surely where it's really interesting, mm-hmm. is it the, the, the long tail of customers? You know, like, I'm not hugely interested in a card on the front of an exchange. It's like, meh, you know, what's it going to do? Whereas if I've been very, very lightly banked or underbanked in certain territories, I know Nepal really, really well because I, I lived there when I was younger, like there's a lot of people there now with smartphones yeah. who've very who've been very lightly banked or unbanked, yeah. but are actually becoming richer on a year by year basis. Um, and you know, someone turns up with this infrastructure, they wouldn't really care because they they're not used to the incumbent. Of course, they're, set up so they're underserved. But you know, the dynamics in Singapore and Switzerland, you know, they're they're two sides of the same coin right. in terms of, I guess, access to financial services. But the difference is within Singapore, you have a lot of institutional flow, but you have a lot of active, aggressive retail activity. So that's the virtual bank angle. I think coming back to Singham here is they found a regulatory regime that allows them to turn into a bank. Everything we've spoken about before has been around investing in hedge funds and payment channels, right? The Telegram piece earlier was really about how do I pay and transact. This is more about wholesale transacting, but also storage. So it's legitimizing this mechanism and then making it look and feel like something that people can assess and get comfortable with. It's basically the dad rock version of punk. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, because you you don't have to get people used to crypto. It's kind of bringing the other this way, right? Yeah, yeah. This is journey, basically. This is journey. (laughs) 
We'll move on to our last story from uh, Yahoo Finance. Portugal's tax authority says crypto trading and payments are tax free. Time to move to Portugal. Cryptocurrency trading and payments in Portugal are tax-free. The European country tax authority has indeed clarified. So both cryptocurrency trading in real currencies and remuneration in cryptocurrencies are exempt from value-added tax. So I'm on. Is it time for us to pack up and move to Portugal? Well, uh, the weather's better, certainly. And it's still part of Europe. So that's, I think that's all great. What this tells me is that perhaps the level of cryptocurrency trading in Portugal is not going to have any net effect either way for the Portuguese tax authorities. Alternatively, they don't really know how to capture this information. But I've never known any tax authorities say, yeah, that's all right, because there's a lot happening. Do you think, it, do you think it's part of, like, because Portugal's done such a good job of everything from moving Web Summit to encouraging more and more tech businesses down there. Is this just part of the Portuguese national approach? So... Don't tax the trading, but bring the trading companies, bring the cryptocurrency, create it as a crypto hub. You know, do, do what Malta's done in other places. And, and you know, and I think that's very smart if, if that's the... I know some programmers, for example, who work on a lot of open source and decentralized projects. And what they tend to do is they tend to get paid in cryptocurrency. So it's that thing, right? So 20 years ago, Apple attracted developers by building really good laptops this is the modern equivalent of that. You know, Lisbon and Porto are the new Apple, essentially. I mean, yes. which is great. And I think, you know, I, it's a lovely place. It's a good place to work. Smart from the authorities, I think. Yeah. I wonder whether they're going to hit any kind of pan-European issue with this. But I guess... It's a, it's a local guess, tax rule, right? Yeah. It's everything. It's a local tax rule. So it's right. A, and it's the same as, you know, the Irish have got with corporation tax. So Yeah. 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 Or, yeah you know, how, how do you tax high net worth individuals, right? It's down to each... Country, yeah. country, or in this case, low net worth individuals with a lot of crypto. I don't know. Yeah, just realised I'll be in Lisbon later this month. Should be fun. Well, let us know <laughs> how, the, how the crypto haven is. I will do. I'll report back. Uh, stories we didn't have time to cover. So from decrypt, Ethereum is halal. I'll just let that one there for a little bit. The block, uh, Philippine boxer and senator Manny Pacquiao launches his own cryptocurrency to be listed on an exchange. I obviously was going to put a sports-related story in his in, in here as uh, Simon and Colin have left me with Blockchain Insider and responsible for it. Business Wire, MERJ exchange partners with the FCA re- regulated Globacap to offer tokenized securities to EU investors. And uh, finally from the block, Hadira Hashgraph set to open mainnet platform to the general public. And if you guys want to find out what they're doing and a bit more about Hadira Hashgraph, in episode 91 of Blockchain Insider, Colin had a chat with uh, CEO Mance Harmon. So uh, do check that out if you're interested in finding out more about uh, Hedera Cashgraph. Now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Tweet of the Week comes from our good friend, Stephen Pally. Uh, so he has a little thread here over on Twitter about um, the curious case of Dr. Craig White, who has been in the news and kind of all over the the crypto twitter sphere and in the gossip really so is it anyone who thinks that a case isn't over after a judge says that the defendant is a liar who fabricated evidence and orders them to pay the other side's fees has a curious understanding of what it means to win Kleiman versus Wright may poodle on for a little while some remaining affirmative defenses the ones that weren't stricken play out but this case and this defendants are done i described the court's uh, order yesterday as case ending and stand by that description if i am wrong and the guy and his lawyers pull 
his f- uh, fat out of the thrilling fire and win on limitations ground, I will eat my herring. And uh, I, I actually put in a little quote here from the judge of the court and the the case. He said, during his testimony, Dr. Wright's demeanor did not impress me as someone who was telling the truth. When it was favorable to him, Dr. Wright appeared to have an excellent memory and a scrupulous attention to detail. Otherwise, Dr. Wright was belligerent and evasive. Doesn't look good for uh, fake Toshi, does it? (laughs) Toshi. I love the, uh, there was a FT Alphaville, I think it was, headline that said, he's not Satoshi, he's a very naughty boy, which is um, for, um, an amazing reference from Monty Python. <laughs> so, what, what a lot of this reminds me of, there's some early, very bad uh, Peter Sellers Pink Panther movies where he basically does the Asian equivalent of blackface and dresses up as Bruce Lee and does really bad Asian stuff, stereotypes, and it's absolutely terrible. That's kind of like what this is. I don't really know if he can make it back after what the judge said about him. <laughs> I, I don't, I think. Well, uh, once costs are awarded, right. yeah, once, once costs are awarded, you're done. If a judge calls you a liar in, in more ways than one, then mm. I doubt you're going to get much from this case. But uh, yeah, I'm sure we haven't heard a last of uh, Dr. Craig Wright. The appeal would be interesting. I would love to see the, uh, do these uh, court documents go public at any stage or are they, are they, not too sure, I hope so. I'm not sure. Because you can find that on a future episode of Blockchain Insider. <laughs> <laughs> I, think but, I think we found your Christmas kit. <laughs> so that wraps up today's show. Just to remind you all, this podcast is made by 11FS and they're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services. 11FS also creates truly digital propositions, working with banks, big techs, and all kinds of companies who want to get the most out of where finance meets customers. Want to hear more Blockchain Insider every Every single Thursday? Well, the subscribe button is right there. And if you've already subscribed, why not leave us a review? You can't hear Colin or Simon, so it can't be that bad, right? Give us five stars. Uh, where can people find out more about you, Amon? Well, I'm on Twitter, at A. Coley. And as you've probably gathered, I really speak for myself and not any responsible corporation or person. So for me, in a professional way, I'm on LinkedIn, at uh, Amon Coley. And uh, there, I'm a, I'm a grown-up. My company is DXE, so you'll find us on thrive.dxe.technology. We're working with our customers to uh, embrace digital transformation and thrive on change. Well, what about you and uh, what you're going to be doing with 11FS? Um, you will find me on Twitter at WillWhite11FS. Branded up? You bet. And I did suggest <laughs> that you should just can the 11FS bit and just put 11s instead of the I's. That's really good. It's very creative. I, I was good enough when I had to change my handles. <laughs> and you can but find... you can change it again, which is good. So Yeah, exactly. So that's... We'll want 11FS for now. <laughs> for now. Could change. <laughs> TBC. There's no for now in this handle. <laughs> and you can find me at Pet Berisha. So at P-E-T-B-E-R-I-S-H-A. It used to be Petri at 996 but I was told that was too childish and kind of uh, year six-ish apparently. A big thanks to our amazing production team here at 11FS our producers Laura and Hannah and our editor for today Holly. Thanks for listening everyone, we will have more Blockchain Insider next week. Goodbye. <laughs>